Right. Well, good afternoon and welcome. Um, I'm Nairi Woods, but it's a huge pleasure to be introducing today uh, Richard Manning to you. Um, Richard's had an extraordinary um, role in global aid and development assistance, uh, first as head of um, Britain's Department for International, Director General of Britain's International Development Department, and then as chair of the OECD's Development Assistance Committee. He co-chaired the high-level forum on aid effectiveness, which was, has been and is an ongoing effort to make donors coordinate and make their aid more effective. Um, but recently, um, a lot of Richard's time has been taken up as vice chair of the Global Fund Replenishment, on the one hand, and coordinator of the replenishment of the African Development Fund on the other. So here we have two very important initiatives that rely on these replenishment negotiations, which can serve as a little bit of a barometer, taking the temperature of what's happening across the aid community. And Rich has been sitting in the driving seat of both of those processes. Um, so for all those reasons, and then many more, Richard's own uh, writing and analysis of uh, both the constraints and possibilities for the aid community are just exemplary in their clarity and direction. So, Richard, it's, it's really a pleasure to have you talk to us about the future of aid. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nari. I was uh, reminded that um, a few years ago now I had to write a paper on the... Um, the Millennium Development Goals, and my starting point was uh, for you to arrange a meeting here at Oxford at which we brainstormed around this issue. And in a way, I'm seeing this, uh, this lecture as a slightly another brainstorming event in which I'm hoping to also to learn from you as well as to say something, because um, I thought it was time to put an article down somewhere about where we are on these issues following these replenishments last year. And I think it's really useful to have this opportunity to uh, put my thoughts together, share them with you, and then let's see uh, what kind of discussion we have over that. Um, I should also say that I've just joined the, um, the Blavatnik School of Governance, having been working with Paul Collier at the uh, Centre for Study of African Economies over the last couple of years. And one of the things I've learned at Blavatnik is that we, have, uh, we care about our skills. So every Tuesday there's a skills session, and um, I'm the beneficiary of this in two respects this afternoon. First of all, I was given good instructions on a, a discussion about uh, precisely this sort of use of PowerPoint that it's a great mistake to put your lecture notes up on screen, which is what I tend to do. So you'll see that I haven't put any lecture notes up on screen. So that's one good thing. And secondly, they taught me how to take charts from Excel, which I should have known years ago and didn't. So uh, if you don't like the charts, it's because uh, Excel's uh, sort of program it is. Um, I'm going to put two preliminary questions on the table before I really get into this, uh, which really set the context a bit of why we might be discussing this. First is... Does aid matter anymore? And um, there are arguments, of course, that aid is really much less significant. And here is um, a slide which, uh, for which I'm very grateful to uh, Dirk Willem at, um, at ODI. And it, it appears in the latest report of the uh, International Development Select Committee. And it shows aid, foreign direct investment, remittances, and domestic taxation in middle-income countries as percents of their gross national income. 
And you can see that aid is vanishingly small. And in fact, aid wasn't actually as important. It was 2005, um, the West wrote off huge amounts of debt uh, owed by Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And that uh, distorted the numbers. So in fact, all those red numbers should be low down. So you might say from that point of view that uh, why do we bother about aid? It's so small in relation to the economies of these middle-income countries. But look at the same chart for low-income countries, of whom there are still quite a number. And you will see that aid is still very significant. 10% of, of GNI, uh, if your budget is, let's say, um, a quarter of GNI, translates into 40% of your budget. This is, these are big numbers. So ODA does matter. Uh, but also I think that, more broadly, concessional flows are extremely important for the sustainable management of the planet, notably for global public goods such as tackling infectious disease, adapting to climate change, mitigating the rise of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, reducing the risks of conflict and state failure, addressing the issues of taxation of multinational companies and the possible effects of changes in that on small countries that depend on uh, tax haven status and so on. And many of these issues are, of course, going to be addressed or may be addressed in whatever kind of post-2015 architecture the international community chooses to um, adopt. And as the international community moves in that direction, if it's assuming it gets there, then undoubtedly the question of the volume and purpose of international concessional flows will uh, be important. The second preliminary question is, do multilateral development institutions matter? Within the aid field, they clearly do, and I'll get some figures in a minute. But I'd like to make a slightly broader point here, that in my view, the creation and support of multilateral institutions by what I might call the development community has been a very important element in the underlying international set of arrangements that shaped the world we live in. The world's accommodated a doubling of the number of people on the planet since I was at college at living standards, which for most people are hugely larger than they have ever been in history. This doesn't mean we should be uncritical of the multilateral development institutions. I'm certainly going to pretend that because of multilateral development institutions, these things have been possible. But I'll save my comments on what I think about those to the end of the talk. Uh, but I feel that some of the conversation I've read, for example, uh, Mark Mazower's book about governing the world, lots of very interesting points, but he completely omitted, if you like, the international development system, which I think is not a, a, a minor part of what's been done. Uh, the, my previous uh, outfit, the Development Assistance Committee, now publishes every year a forward look at aid, which I think is a very good innovation. So it, it consults all its members and says, what are you planning to provide? And then it adds up the numbers. And that's what its latest numbers say. So that despite the very difficult situation, fiscal situation of most donor countries, it's predicting pretty much a flat amount of aid over the next few years after a modest increase from 2012 to 2013, with remarkably little change in the multilateral-bilateral split. The institutions I'm going to talk about are the African Development Fund, the soft uh, loan of arm of the African Development Bank, IDA, which is, of course, the soft loan arm of the World Bank, and the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria. And those three institutions account for 60% of all multilateral aid. I've used the acronym CPA, which is the DAC-speak for Country Programmable Assistance, which is, broadly speaking, aid in the sense that you, you or I would understand it. So they're pretty important in relation to that. And if you look at what they've done over the last few years, uh, IDA's been fairly level around the 10 billion mark. Um, the Global Fund, of course, has grown from nothing uh, to a very significant player, over 3 billion uh, expenditure a year. The African Development Fund has grown somewhat more modestly to around the 2 billion mark. 
So they're quite important. Take a long-term view. If you look at the dotted red line, that shows multilateral aid as percentage of all aid provided by DAC members, uh, excluding the European institutions, which I'll come back to in just a moment. It's an interesting chart. It shows that back in the 60s, when this whole endeavor started, multilateral aid was extremely small. Most aid was bilateral. Uh, it then grew very rapidly through the 60s up to the mid-70s. And since then, there's been a pretty consistent downward trend. I would say these two spikes downwards in 91 and 2005 are slightly artificial because in both cases there was huge debt write-off, which counts as bilateral. So forget the two downward spikes, but there's a very clear downward trend to about 2004, after which there's um, a modest recovery. But you could say that multilateral aid has been between 20 and 25% for most of the last um, period. Um, it's also clear that, uh, as you look at this chart, if you look at the blue line, which also includes the European Union, that a feature of the last few years has been a remarkable growth in the amount of aid provided through the European institutions, something that's not very often referred to in debates about Europe. And as it happens, in 2013, not only were these three replenishments done, but also the European Union decided, as it does every seven years, its whole budget for the next seven years up to 2020... And I think it would be good just to spend a couple of minutes just looking at that. And I owe these slides to uh, Michaela Gavis, also at ODI. This is the, it isn't actually the development budget, this is the whole EU budget, the top part of this, from 2014 to 2020. The development bit is under Global Europe, which is going to grow by 3.3% over a seven-year period, which isn't a great deal. And the European Development Fund, which is funded separately and funds aid to Africa, the Caribbean and Pacific, is basically level pegging. So what we see in Europe is um, basically very little change in the absolute numbers. That's in real terms, I think. And uh, with, even within it, there's not much change, except that they're putting more money into partnerships with industrialised countries, and there are one or two changes around pre-accession. So a very stable situation. Uh, Europe typically takes about 0.1% of the GNI of each of its members. So if you're providing 0.7%, like Sweden or the UK... It counts for about a seventh of your aid programme. If you're providing 0.2% uh, like Italy, it, provides, it takes half of it. And if you're doing less than that, as some of the Eastern Europeans are, it's even more. So how did these three replenishments go? We're a bit inhibited because the Ida deputies report is not yet in the public domain, but here's the figures as far as they exist publicly. And um, for the two banks, I've shown two figures. These are the donor contributions here and here. We're missing the last year of IDA because I don't have the figures yet. And these are the total size of the replenishment, which takes account of the reflows to each of these institutions and the amount that the bank, or the bank and IFC in the World Bank case, provide as profits, which boosts the size of the replenishment. So the general picture is that on the donor contribution side, it's pretty much flat in, in cash terms in the Africa Development Fund. It's rising reasonably sharply in the Global Fund, and we're not quite sure about IDA, but I think based on the right-hand line, which is the total line, it's probably gone up in cash terms, but, but maybe about level pegging in real terms, but we'll find that out shortly. So that's the overall picture, and I'm afraid that uh, these two are somewhat negatively correlated with my involvement. As vice chair of the Global Fund, I did rather little, and they did rather well. As coordinator of the African Development Fund, they did quite a lot, and they didn't achieve a great deal. But that's just the way the world, uh, the world goes, isn't it? Why was that? I mean, not, but why has the African Development Fund not let me come on to that in just a second, because I, I will go through all three in a little bit, of, a little bit more detail. Um, 
But I suppose my first conclusion then, and this is my first conclusion to test with you, is that the replenishment showed that despite these very stringent fiscal constraints on many donors, there's still strong support for all three institutions. Their continued significant role is not in question, and the multilateral system, though I, I don't use the word system uh, usually as a multilateral organisation, because so it's not very systemic, is not about to collapse. However, if you look behind the totals, a second conclusion would be that the system is under a number of signs of strain. First of all, all three institutions remain very heavily dependent on traditional donors, and among these, as I'll show in a moment, a few are regularly providing much more than their relative economic size would suggest. Uh, I'll show you some examples uh, in just a second. Secondly, apart from the Global Fund, I think we'll find there was virtually no growth in real terms in donor contributions, and not even that for the African Development Fund. And that's very similar to the picture we've just seen for the European Union. So we will have a see this is far from the whole picture, and I'll come back to that. But it does show that... Um, we're not in the kind of growth phase we were in a few years ago. Let's go quickly through the institutions then. I've, for each institution, I've split them up between Europe, that includes Norway and Switzerland, as well as the EU, US and Canada, and uh, for, those, for those institutions where relevant, I've put the Australians and New Zealanders in, they're not members of the African Bank, Japan and Korea, and the non-DAC countries, which is everybody else. So you can immediately see for the African Development Fund, it's hugely depend on Europe to a, uh, an unhealthy degree, one might say. And that, first, furthermore, it hasn't changed very much. There's a bit more coming in from uh, US, North America, and East Asia, a, a little tiny fraction more from non-DAC, but it's very stationary. And if you look at who the big donors are in that, that's the top ten, which haven't changed over the three <coughs> periods. And I'd pick out particularly Sweden. Here's Sweden providing almost as much as Japan. More than Canada. Huge effort by Sweden. I picked up Italy because you might think it, Italian contribution would have collapsed. It didn't. Italian contribution was very strongly maintained. Contrast the Netherlands, where they just cut the aid program from 0.8% to point, their target is 0.5 something in a couple of years' time. Big cut from the Netherlands. And over here, the UK already punching well above its weight, you might say, relative to Germany and France, who you tend to look at, let alone the Americans, are continuing to provide more money into this. And if you, the inside story of this is quite, quite amusing in a way. The, the British government was, um, wanted to maintain its share of the, of the replenishment, which I think is, is excellent. Um, but what size is the replenishment? How do you calculate what the total size is? And a precedent, an interesting precedent was set in the Asian Development Fund a few years ago when uh, Japan provides 30% of, of the Asian Development Fund. So the donors worked out that they would leave a large unfunded gap in this replenishment so that the Japanese 30% would be 30% of a larger number. Uh, the, the hope is that, of course, other donors come along and fill up this gap, but in the Asian development fund cases, gap is in excess of, excess of 20%. We didn't go that far in the African Development Fund, but we, um, we gave ourselves a little bit of room for manoeuvre, which uh, facilitated it. Um, so that's, uh, that's the African development situation. And I think that, in response to Nari's question, I felt Two things crystallized this for me. One was that there was no country volunteering to host the final meeting. We, we finished up, actually, in Paris, but we had to kind of negotiate with the French to do that. And there was no single country which was kind of putting the pressure on the rest. I was involved with a Gavi replenishment a, year, a couple of years ago where Britain, Norway, and the Gates Foundation worked as a team to put pressure on everybody else to get them to contribute. 
as we'll see when we come to the Global Fund, the situation is very different there, but there was no one country which said, or group of countries, said this is really important, we've got to do it. So, and this is a, in a bank which has done pretty well, actually. Kabaruka has done a good job in turning the bank into a, a much more respected institution. So, as the coordinator, I'm a bit disappointed. I also feel that this is, uh, to go back a slide, this is pretty disappointing too. Here's the non-DAC countries. We got... Um, quite sharp increases in nominal terms from very low levels by India and South Africa. Um, I'll come back to China later because uh, China is, uh, is an interesting case in point, and Russia is not actually even a member, uh, as indeed is the same set of Australia. Global fund. Um, the global fund is a little bit harder to read. I've put it annual numbers here. The, the, the size of global fund replenishments is not so well organized as the two banks, and therefore the, number, the comparability is a bit of a more of an issue. So this chart needs to be read with a bit of care. The biggest you, I think you'll see from that, is that the red line, which is United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, but largely America, has risen relative to the European share. And this reflects the Obama administration's decision to put much more of its PEPFAR resources, its bilateral spending on uh, HIV AIDS, through the Global Fund. So it's become a very significant player. And in fact... Um, the, here we did have the lead donor. The lead donor was the Americans. The Americans said, we will provide up to $5 billion uh, on the basis that's not more than a third of the total replenishment. And when we started the replenishment process, we were looking for $15 billion. We ended up with 12, so the Americans were providing four rather than five. But having a donor, and then the British came along and said, we'll provide 10% up to whatever it was. So having donors in that position puts other donors under pressure to say, because your money is then leveraging more American money. So that was a much better situation to be in. And this is all the more remarkable because this institution has been through hell over the last three years. It's lost its executive director, had to resign. It's lost its inspector general, who was sacked. It's had a huge corruption scandal to deal with. And uh, it's come out of that with a huge reshaping and restructuring in a way in which the donors are prepared to invest on this scale. So I think it's a great tribute to Mark Dybel, uh, the new head of it, uh, that they've managed to do this. Um, if you look at the uh, major donors here, this is a place where the southern European donors have rather fallen away. Spain and Italy were big donors at the beginning of this. They've fallen out of the picture. Sweden, again, has uh, come good. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has put up its, uh, its private sector share. And other private sector companies have done a certain amount. Uh, France has always been the uh, very strong supporter of the Global Fund, vastly more than Germany, and in the past vastly more than the UK. This time, the UK made a colossal completely colossal increase in its contribution. I mean, that's a remarkable increase. The Americans are already at the $4 billion mark, so they're very generous uh, contributors to this. And unlike the African Development Bank, there's not many all others. The rest are really very small. A lot of very small donors, not much else. Um, but very interesting, on the private sector side, for example, a large Indonesian foundation came in with, um, I think, $60 million or something. I mean, some, you know, some really serious money is coming in from some uh, unusual sources. And finally, IDA. Well, we can't uh, tell you too much about IDA because we don't have all these numbers for the last time round. But IDA's replenishment was interesting for two reasons. One is that for the first time it's accepted loans from uh, its contributors. And the Japanese, French and British have taken that up. Uh, IDA can do this because it's providing aid to a, a range of countries, including those that receive blended finance, or in the case of India, which is transitioning out of IDA, finance on intermediate terms. So it can accept a portion, a small portion of the total in loan form. This is quite unprecedented for any of these replenishments. Uh, and for the Japanese and the French, this enables them to provide the money from other sources 
with the public purse only paying the interest subsidy. So it, it makes a huge difference to the taxpayer contribution from those two countries. The UK doesn't have that effect, but I suppose the UK probably felt in the end of the day you get the money back and it, um, the, quite the, reason, the logic of the UK position is not quite so obvious to me, but there it is. Um, also, a second point to note, and Jim Kim brought that out in his public statement, is that they have attracted some new donors, not least from Southeast Asia, uh, admittedly at this stage on a small scale. And I think the fact that IDA is linked to the World Bank, which is linked to the IMF, uh, does encourage more people to take part. So the IDA donor population is increasing, and I think we will see some further increase in this um, rather low number next time around. So my impression is that the three replenishments will mean that... Um, Whereas aid from the African Development Fund, the EDF, and the EU budget will, decline, will account for a declining share of most economic indicators in recipient countries, there will be some... The situation is rather different from, in the case of IDA and the Global Fund for, for reasons I'll come on to. Of course, one would expect aid to decline as a portion of, uh, of, of recipient country GNI over time. That's what development does. And uh, this is not necessarily wrong. But particularly in Africa... Because the African Development Bank itself has fewer resources this time, the flat replenishment means that there will be a real cut in African Development Bank uh, soft lending to some of the countries in Africa. Um, and I think that they will need to think more about beginning to use the hard window of the African Development Bank to make that up. Because after all, many African countries are now floating bonds in the international capital market, so the world is definitely changing. And... All, both the two banks, the conversation among the donors is very much about you must do more for fragile states. So I think fragile states and conflict-affected countries will get more from both banks as part of this. And in a way, they've accepted Paul Collier's thesis that this bottom billion that Paul uh, brought forward several years ago is the heart of the development problem, if you like. And money will go to some of those countries rather than what you might call Andy Sumner's bottom billion, Andy Sumner of IDS, produced, uh, you know, if you, looked, if you look today at who the bottom billion are, the poorest people, they're mostly not in fragile states, they're mostly in middle-income countries like India. And on the whole, aid is going to transition from Andy Sumner's bottom billion to Paul Collier's bottom billion, I think is way of uh, describing this. Um, this um, the shift in funding are reflected, if you like, there aren't, the shifts in funding are not very great between these blocks. And if you look at how these institutions are, um, are governed, it's remarkably similar. Here's the voting shares in the African Development Bank uh, six years apart. Hard to say what's changed, isn't it? The, the remarkable thing is actually the total of non-DAC has actually gone down in that period, not what you might have imagined if coming from Mars. Uh, World Bank, similar picture. China's gone up, quite correctly. Might have gone up more, you might think, relative to Japan. Europe has come down fractionally. But these are not very large changes, are they? So it's interesting that governance hasn't shifted further, if you like, to reflect the changes. The, the Global Fund governance system is actually very interesting, and I'll give it just 30 seconds on that, because the Global Fund involves, through a constituency system, donors on the one hand, recipients on the other, but also it involves the communities affected by the diseases. It involves northern and southern uh, non-governmental organisations. It involves the private sector and private foundations. And on a non-voting basis, it includes the technical expertise of the um, malaria, TB and HIV AIDS communities. And uh, it has a very complicated 
set of rules as to how consensus is reached in that organization. And it's a very interesting model for the future, not least for the Green Climate Fund. But it does suggest to me that there's more work to be done on adapting governance of these institutions to changing realities, and notably as a case for adjusting the share of slow-growing European countries more quickly to their lower share of global GNI. And uh, these are in current prices. Everybody's GNI has gone up in this period, even in Europe. But uh, you only have to look at the BRICS part of this to see that there's a huge transition taking place between 2006 and 2013, which is not at all reflected in the chart I've just showed you. And um, I think there's an extremely strong case for adjusting the shares more quickly to economic realities. And in the specific European case, I remain an advocate of rationalising, possibly severely, the representation of Eurozone or even EU members. Um, and I won't quote the whole thing, but there's been a very, there was a very elegant article written by Lorenzo Bini-Smaghi of the ECB at the time, a few years ago, in which he argues the case, to my mind, very cogently, that by giving up most of its multiple executive directors in these institutions and replacing them with one or two, and giving up quite a share of the votes, the European Union could actually be much more influential. I think that's a very persuasive thesis when you look at, um, at the numbers more carefully. But this imaginative leap seems to be not on anyone's agenda. Against this background, we should pause to reflect on how the BRICS and other emerging powers have contributed to these institutions. As I've said, some have increased contributions sharply from very low levels. India has gone up over a six-year period from 6 to 12 million SDRs, and South Africa from 7 to 16 in the African Development Fund. China's gone from 6 to 15, and India from 7 to 13 and a bit in the Global Fund. Um, so they've gone up by large percentages from very small numbers to very small numbers. Russia is not a member of the African Development Bank and has transitioned from being a recipient of global fund programs to a rather, to a, no, to a reasonable donor, 60 million a year. China is a particular case in point, though, which is, I think, very interesting. China's contribution to the African Development Fund is highly disappointing. It provided 80 um, million SDRs in 2007. 84 in 2010, and in 2013, after three more years of Chinese growth, 84 million again. The reason that China did that was because China decided it was going to take the same proportion of the replenishments last time, and the replenishment was the same size, so one thing's followed from the other. However, this badly undersells the significance of China's engagement with the multilateral development banks, which is in fact developing in remarkable ways that might not have been predicted. In March 2013, the People's Bank of China and the Inter-American Development Bank agreed on what they called a China co-financing fund for Latin America and the Caribbean, to which China contributed $2 billion. In September 2013, as uh, Judge Yun and I discovered yesterday, uh, the IFC, oh, it's all in the public domain, concluded an agreement with the, not only the People's Bank, but also with the State Administration of Foreign Exchange, which uh, holds China's um, foreign exchange reserves of $3 trillion or so, under which China will contribute $3 billion over the next six years to, uh, to a new co-investment co vehicle with IFC known as the Managed Co-Lending Portfolio Program. This was described to me yesterday by an IFC official as a, quote, pilot program, unquote, $3 billion. Under this, under this uh, co-financing, credit decisions will be delegated by investors, in this case China, to the IFC. Projects financed under the program will follow IFC's investment strategy across regions and sectors and conform to IFC's performance standards. And next month, the African Development Bank Board will be considering a proposal not dissimilar to the Inter-American Bank Board one. 
So this is extremely significant in terms of China's engagement with the international financial institutions and in terms of expanding their operations significantly beyond what the relatively stagnant contributions to their core replenishments would suggest. So this is a very interesting strategy which is quantitatively large enough to make you think rather differently about the whole picture. And this, of course, comes at the same time as the BRIC countries themselves are presumably going to announce in Fortaleza in Ju July the setting up of a BRICS bank, though the, the dimensions of the BRICS bank and whether it will have a soft window and exactly what it will do, I think, remain to be determined. If I had more time, I'd read to you a very excellent article by Mark Dybel and Julia Frank, which I think is worth looking at, about how the emerging powers should be better integrated into the world system, but I'll refer to that if um, it comes up in questions. The final things I'll do before I stop <clears throat> are, first of all, that the world is changing very much on the client side of these institutions. So here's a chart from the Centre for Global Development on IDA. These are the contributions made to IDA in each retention. You'll see what a huge increase there was in 2006, as we all said goodbye to Paul Bozovich and what's happened in the last uh, couple. But here's the interesting point. This is the population of IDA-eligible countries. Here's China graduating. Here's India graduating, and many other countries graduating. So IDA is, which I say is a great efficient recycler of funds from places like China and India to Africa, is approaching the point where donor contributions become each replenishment less important than the previous one. And a CGD study by Moss and Severino sees self-sufficiency by IDA 20. We're now at IDA 17, so that's nine years off. Uh, this will be a very interesting dynamic. It's already evidence in the soft fund of the Inter-American Bank, which needs no new resources at all before 2020, at least. And in the Asian Development Fund, donor contributions to its last replenishment, 2012, are only 37.5 of the total resources, So, because they're recycling a lot of money too. So from that point of view, you could say the whole replenishment mechanism may become less important, or eventually, as in the inter-American case, cease to exist. So this, I think, really shows the strength of this MDB soft fund model, despite the attempts of the curious coalition in about the year 2000 of the NGOs on the one hand and the Meltzer Commission representing the Republican right on the other to push these institutions into more grant financing. It's gone a certain distance, but not so far that it's lost this, uh, this point. The Global Fund's in a completely different situation. The Global Fund is a grant-giving institution. It can only keep going as long as people keep replenishing it, and that will go on being an issue. And then... Um, Two final points. The first is that I think that we continue, need to continue to think about the balance between issues-based international collaboration typified by the Global Fund, as a collaboration to do a particular thing, and the more country-based approach is typified by IDA. I personally continue to see the need for both of these. It's interesting to see in the replenishment process that IDA and the African Development Fund are also pushed to be thematic about fragile states, about gender, about climate change about good governance, along with their own specific things. But I think that you need a balance between this country-based things, which allows the country to make some choices for what it does with the money, versus these vertical funds, which are great ways of getting insecticide-treated bed nets across Africa, uh, and undoubtedly enable you to do certain things that you couldn't otherwise do. It pulls... If you imagine the Global Fund as an alternative to 15 or 20 different bilateral programs trying to get insecticide bed nets in Africa, there's no comparison. I mean, Gabby is the poster child example for this, the vaccination program. You know, why would you want a British program and a Belgian program and an Australian program to vaccinate people when you've got a single body which can buy the vaccines for everybody? And I think these issues will become, will get a strong area in this whole post-2015 and sustainable development goal discussion. 
It's not impossible that issues-based financing will increasingly be seen as the way forward. A very important issue this year are the negotiations on the Green Climate Fund, which is a key building block in any climate change deal in Paris in December 2015, which is the next point of the uh, international climate change debate. And this may well make sense from the point of view of maintaining public support. The Global Fund, for example, has huge strengths in the U.S. Congress. Um, and uh, I think there's a sense in which northern publics may be readier to vote for aid which are aimed at things that they regard as significant issues that concern them, like climate change. But at the same time, it's important to sustain the ability of more aid-dependent recipient countries to have their priorities heard and exert real ownership. And finally, uh, for the banks, and the World Bank in particular, there is an issue around the balance between the core resources which come from replenishments and the remarkable number of trust funds for this or that objective that donors have chosen to fund through them, um, as indeed through the UN. I mean, the, here's the... This is core funding to the World Bank, Ida. This is what donors are giving it to do specific things, all sorts of donors. I discovered when I was at DFID at one stage, we had well over 100 trust funds that we didn't, we didn't know how many we had. The World Bank had to tell us. The UN, even more so, they're getting twice as much in, in non-core funding as the RM core. Regional banks, rather the opposite way around. Other multilaterals, like the Global Fund, again, rather the other way around. But that's a big, again, a big issue as to what the right balance is there. Too many trust funds, I think, raise questions about who called the shots and how to ensure local ownership. Finally, as I said at the outset, I'm not uncritical myself of multilateral development institutions. They're probably too numerous. Turf wars are too frequent. Uh, I very much recommend, by the way, a, a fantastic book by a former DFID colleague, Mukesh Kapila. On, uh, it's, called, um, it's a very serious book about Darfur. Uh, it's called Against the Tide of Evil. But he has a wonderful vignette where he arrives as the UNDP representative in Khartoum and he finds this UN fleet of different agencies all sitting around not being used properly and he suggests they rationalise it. And the trouble he gets into with New York trying to, <laughs> trying to do the simplest thing makes you despair. Um, some are clearly less efficient and effective than others. Most of them are too dependent on donors and some have a reputation, may or may not be well-deserved, for arrogance. But in many ways, the development sector has been more active and effective in pioneering international collaboration to deal with planetary issues than most other policy communities, I would argue. A multilateral approach has been particularly useful where institutions can depoliticize issues. The famous case here is how the Indus waters problem was dealt with in India and Pakistan in the early 50s by the World Bank. But at the African Development Bank, I really like some interesting recent examples where the African Development Bank, as an African institution, can get involved with countries like Somalia and Sudan in ways that outside people can't and really move things forward in a very creative way. And in order to build regional infrastructure, you've got to get three or four countries to collaborate. That's hugely difficult. And these institutions are much better at doing it than bilaterals. They can bring collective wisdom to bear. They can achieve this upstream pooling, as I was talking about with vaccinations, so that you pool all the money in Gavi, and it then does it. So you don't have lots and lots of donors doing the same thing, thus minimising unnecessary transaction costs. I believe that the constituency system, which was formed in the Bretton Woods institutions, is also a fantastic and un, not sufficiently recognised element of the international, uh, international collaboration. It enables you to have 20 or so people around the table who represent 180 countries. It's a very efficient way of doing business. Everybody's got a stake in... Tom Executive Director is responsible for everybody, and it gives you a limited number of people to, to operate with. And, of course it avoids a lot of the problems of commercial pressures and so on that the bilaterals uh, feel. And you bring together high-quality professionals from across the world to tackle issues of global significance. 
Uh, Owen Bader has written a fantastic blog on this, which I won't quote now because I haven't got time, but I think he makes a very strong case as to why multilaterals uh, do matter. So I think that we should take a rather positive view overall from this replenishment round, particularly at the time it's taken place, but recognize these very significant strains in the system and continue to follow with interest some of these quite, quite intriguing policy issues that are gradually arising as the system adapts to changing realities. Thank you very much.